welcome to the Paranormal Sun, coming to you live from Tower Studios. I'm JT, and each week, I'll be your tour guide as we explore the unexplained. We all have heard tales of single-minded, stubborn, or strong-willed people who have created some monumental structures, works, and gifts for us to enjoy throughout the ages. Some of these have been hewn from words, such as Samuel Johnson's opus, A Dictionary of the English Language, Nine Years in the Making, or Tolstoy's War and Peace, six years in the making, and 1,225 pages in its first release. As a writer, I can tell you, that's no mean feat. What about more imposing monuments? Well, you of course have examples like the Taj Mahal and the Pharos Lighthouse of Alexandria, but these were projects led by steel-willed individuals. Thousands of men toiled on such projects, and although a great sense of purpose may have been required to see the project through, they all had massive resources and usually enormous wealth and power thrown at them. Now imagine a man weighing in at just over five feet tall and only a hundred pounds. Now imagine that man, over a 28-year span, constructing a massive edifice out of over 1,100 tons of oolite coral without the aid of modern mechanics or any collaborators. Not one other set of hands has ever been proven to have helped in its construction. And this minuscule man dedicated it all to the love of his life, whom he never won the heart of. Oh, did I forget to mention he also battled tuberculosis? If life was a card game, Edward would have drawn a fizzbin. Tonight I am going to spin you a tale of a love that never was, and a life dedicated to memorializing a path that could have been, and very well may have happened in a parallel universe. Tonight you hear the astounding facts of the life of Edward Leeds Skelnan and his Castle of Coral. Good evening, everyone. I hope you're happy, healthy, and well wherever you are. I hope that you've enjoyed a fruitful week. I hope that, as I say, those of you in the Northern Hemisphere are not freezing your bottoms off. And my neighbors in the Southern Hemisphere, I hope that you're enjoying the warm weather. It's been very warm here the last week. Probably nothing that many of you wouldn't be used to in your neck of the woods. But yeah, it's been a very warm summer here. And... February is usually the hottest month of the year, so we'll just see how that works out. Now, before we get too far into tonight's episode, I just wanted to cover over Season 3 and how it's going to go. So, I just wanted to say to you that the very latest, you can expect a new episode out. So, the beginning of Season 3, in other words, would be the 10th of February here in New Zealand or the 9th of February for those of you in the U.S. Now, we'll just see how we go, but that's three weeks from this Wednesday. And as I said, I was going to need about that much time off. So we'll just see, as I say, um, who knows, I might release early, but just watch this space, basically. In the meanwhile, you can go back and catch up on some of the old episodes. I mean, unlike a lot of shows, I don't do a half hour or even an hour each week, so... There's plenty of hour-and-a-half-plus episodes for you to go back and listen to. Now, I've got some interviews in the can that will be coming out in Season 3. I've also got some other collaborations planned, so I'll be working on some of that stuff in the interim. And there's some other things that I need to do. I really need to get around to updating some of the stuff on the YouTube channel. I need to get around to going back and remastering some of the older episodes. Yeah, I've just got a lot of things to kind of go back and tidy up and get through. I may have about a week of actual rest, and then the rest of the time I'll be working behind the scenes. 
So if you want to get in touch with me, you can still catch up with me all the normal places, social media, email, the website. I'll be around. It's not like I'm going out of the country for three weeks or anything. So on that note, uh, the best way to follow the program, for those of you who may be new to the show, is just go over to the Instagram page. So if you just search The Paranormal Sun on Instagram, it should come up. And there, if you go into the bio of the Instagram page, you'll find a link. And if you click on that link, it will take you to a very nice summation of all of the places you can find The Paranormal Sun. You can find the website there. You can find the email address. You can find the physical postbox address. You can find the links on PayPal, Patreon, pretty much you name it. You can find it all there through that link. That is the easiest way to catch up with all things Paranormal Sun. Now, one other quick note. I am going to be doing a weekly podcast with a fellow podcaster here in New Zealand. And it's basically going to be highlighting other New Zealand podcasts. So we're going to co-host, get together, and interview someone each episode and have them explain to us about their podcast and what they do. Because someone in one of the New Zealand podcast groups that I'm a member of did a bit of a doomsday list of all of the Kiwi podcasts. And he came up with over 380. I think the number was 387. And that's not counting the Fortunate Sun because of its hiatus. But all I'm saying, folks, is that even for such a small country, we too have been under podcast fever. So we definitely have our share of excellent content. So if that's something that interests you, when those episodes are out, I'll drop a note in the social media and you can go over there and check it out. It will be a very different venue, as I say, because this will just be us interviewing other podcasters and discussing what they're doing, what they've got out there, etc., and at some point, I'll probably be interviewed myself about the Paranormal Sun. So watch out for that if that's something that you're interested in, and especially those of you who may be looking for new material to check out. So that's how you can follow the show. Like I say, if there's anything that isn't clear, or you just can't find things, or you're not sure where the Paranormal Sun might be, aside from the obvious podcast platforms, feel free to drop me a note. You can email me at theparanormalsun at gmail.com, and I'll get back to you as soon as I can. I'm pretty active on social media, especially Instagram and the Facebook group. So if there is something you'd like to know or you need to get in touch with me in a bit of a hurry, that's probably the best way is just go to the Instagram page and send me an instant message there. Now, we've got some fascinating stuff to go over on tonight's episode. Got some excellent stories in the News of the Dam segment that I think you'll really enjoy. Some are some real head scratchers, and there is one story in particular that has been doing the rounds, and a lot of people are now starting to click and are starting to realize what a big story this is. Now, I haven't gone into it as much as I need to yet, but I've got an article I'm going to read for you, and then there is definitely some investigation I need to do, and I'll explain to you part of the reason why when we get into that segment. Now, I did have one other listener question that I just wanted to address. I was asked again by someone, Hey, JT, is there a way I can get merchandise for the Paranormal Sun? Yes, there is. Now, I wish that I had a printing press here in Tower Studios where I could just run you off a t-shirt. And I wish that I was backed by a Russian oligarch that allowed me to just zip it off to you free of charge. 
I really do. But unfortunately, <laughs> I, I, I'm not and I don't. So if you do want to get some merchandise, though, you can go to the Paranormal Sun Instagram page, click on the link, and then there's another link there for the merchandise. Alternatively, you can also go to www.theparanormalsun.com. And again, you'll see there are tags there for the Paranormal Sun and the Fortunate Sun merchandise, if you so wish. And if there's anything in particular you want that you don't see there, let me know. At some point in the mid-future, I'd say, so maybe not in the next month or so, I'm going <laughs> so many things on the boil, folks. I'm just sorry. I just don't want to overcommit and make promises about things. But that's one of the things I've got on the list, definitely, is to go through and spruce up some of the offerings there in the merchandise section. So basically watch this space, and when I get around to it, I will definitely let you know. Well, that should cover most everything over. Like I say, again, folks, if you haven't been following along, this will be the last episode of Season 2. So I do seasons of 20 shows, not counting any bonuses or kind of news segments. If you're ever wondering where we are in the season, just look for the latest episode with a number. So season two, episode 19, for example, was the last full episode. This will be episode 20. And then traditionally, I'll take a break in between seasons. As the show's grown and there's gotten to be more work involved in the show and promoting the show and everything else, it's getting to where I'm going to need more time to prepare and also give myself a mental reset in between seasons. But I do my best to try and limit that as best as I can. As I've always said, I really appreciate every one of you who takes the time to listen. You all know that. And I do my absolute best to bring you quality content every week. I know sometimes it's not always exactly one week and life gets in the way as the saying goes, just like this week, unfortunately. But I do my damnedest to try and get something out there that you'll enjoy and I would rather take an extra day, if that's what it takes, than give you something that's subpar. That's just me. That's the way I'm wired. Everyone's different. But I'd rather wait the extra day and get a really nice steak than eat a half-cooked hamburger today. That's just how I am. I haven't heard anyone state anything differently. So hopefully, that's how you feel too as my listening audience. Now, for those of you who may be new to the program... There was a gentleman in the early 1900s named Charles Fort, and Charles Fort was one of the first people who started gathering all of the kind of topics that I love to cover on the News of the Damned, everything from lights in the sky and aerial phenomena to sea monsters, ghost ships, you name it. That gentleman's name was Charles Fort. He gathered these notes, and then he published them into books, and he is one of the first authors that really got this kind of stuff out there for you and I to enjoy. I've been reading Charles Fort since I was very young. He is a bit of a eclectic taste. Many people don't know who he is, but Charles Fort stated that any data that was excluded or ignored by science was damn data. Therefore, every week when we do the news of the damned, we do it with that title as an homage to Charles Fort. So I'll pick out several stories that fit into that genre read them out for you, and then there'll be links to the articles in the show notes, so you can go over and check it out if you would like to, or if there's something more you'd like to know. So with that being said, it's time for the News of the Damned.
So the first article we've got here for you is quite an interesting one. And this comes from coasttocoastam.com. Long-term listeners of the show will know that I get a lot of the subject matter for the news of the dam from Coast to Coast AM, simply because it's an excellent clearinghouse of collating a lot of these stories. And it saves me time having to search all over the internet for them. So this article came out on the 5th of January, and it's titled South Carolina Teens Exploring Haunted House Stumble Upon Body in a Freezer. Sounds like it's straight out of a horror movie, folks. And this is from Tim Banal. A group of teenagers in South Carolina got quite the scare when they were exploring an allegedly haunted house and wound up discovering a dead body in a freezer. According to a local media report, the strange incident occurred this past weekend in the town of Norway. Interesting uh, town name. As eight youngsters were riding ATVs in a remote part of the community. At some point in the midst of their adventure, the kids came upon an abandoned house which is rumored to be haunted. As adventurous teens are wont to do, they threw caution to the wind and ventured inside, presumably in the hopes of encountering a ghost. However, as they were looking around the vacant residence, one of the teens stumbled upon a sizable freezer and decided to see what it may contain. Upon opening the cold storage unit, he was greeted by an ungodly smell which he initially suspected was rotting meat. Technically, that assessment was correct although the contents of the freezer were far more gruesome than merely some pork chops that had been left behind by the former owner of the home. That's because, on closer examination, the horrified teen realized that the meat was wearing jeans and socks. The would-be ghost hunters subsequently called the police, who arrived on the scene to collect the body for an autopsy to be conducted later this week. It is believed that the body inside the freezer had been there for months and could quite possibly be the victim of foul play. Gee, really? As for the teenagers, it would seem that they are now haunted by something far more unsettling than a ghost, the stench from the rotting corpse that they found. I heard that once you smell a human, you can never forget it, said one of the youngsters now stricken with just such an unnerving condition, lamenting that I can still smell it right now. Yeah, folks, not something I've ever wanted to smell. I've smelled a lot of rotten pork, and my understanding is that pork and dead bodies basically smell like the same thing, so... Hopefully, <laughs> I, I never have to find out if that's true. So the next one here I've got for you is also from coasttocoastam.com. And this one is just a few days old. And this one is really fascinating, folks. Again, you'll know that I'm a big proponent of history's mysteries and kind of the fact that I feel that most of what's gone on in the past, we haven't recorded, we haven't documented properly as a species. And there's lots that went on that we don't know about. And one of my predictions for 2021 was that we're going to discover something older than Gobekli Tepe. And when I said that, I mean like a site. So this is very interesting. Indonesian cave painting could be world's oldest artwork depicting an animal. This came out January 13th and also by Tim Banal. An ancient drawing of a pig that was discovered in an Indonesian cave may be the world's oldest depiction of an animal. The artwork, which measures a whopping 4.5 by 1.8 feet, was reportedly first found back in 2017 by researchers studying prehistoric paintings in a remote cavern system located on the island of Sulawesi. Dating tests subsequently done on the drawing determined that it was created at least 45,500 years ago. Assuming that the age of the painting is correct, it would constitute not only the world's oldest drawing of an animal, but also the most ancient figurative artwork ever found. The creature featured in the prehistoric piece 
is a warty pig native to the island that was presumably a prime target for hunters living there long ago. Experts analyzing the image theorize that its sizable nature has, was meant to convey the importance of creatures in providing subsistence. The flip side is that maybe there were giant pigs back then. The cave system on Sulawesi previously yielded a similarly historic painting back in late 2019 in the form of what then believed to be the oldest depiction of a hunting scene. That particular piece, which made headlines in 2019, was determined to have been created around 44,000 years ago and held the proverbial record for an ancient figurative drawing until this newfound warty pig picture was discovered to be even older. Now, folks, something that a lot of people don't know about in general, unless this is the kind of stuff you're into, Indonesia is very much a cradle of civilization, as much, if not more, than Mesopotamia in the Middle East. Indonesia was an archipelago, very warm and humid, and there have definitely been people there for a very long time. If you follow the standard model, people spread down from Asia through Indonesia, down to Papua New Guinea, and into Australia. Now, I am a bit surprised by this, and the reason I say that is they know that Aborigines have been in Australia for at least 60,000 years. So I thought, surely there's an older piece of Aboriginal art, and what I'm going to do now is I'm just going to go behind the magic curtain and go and see if I can find anything before we move on with the show. So, folks, I'm back, and I was on the right track and pretty close. So the oldest known ascribed Aboriginal art in Australia, so again, that's kind of best estimate, is one that's about 40,000 years old in South Australia. So there may very well be others that are older, but that's the oldest kind of generally agreed upon date for Aboriginal art in Australia. Now, again, I find that fascinating that people were there for 20,000 years before that at least, and that's by mainstream science, and yet they can't find anything from that period. But I digress. Uh, who knows what this year will bring? They may very well find some of that older artwork. So now we're on to our next article, and this is a bit of a fun one. I wish I would have had this a little bit earlier, but alas, it didn't happen. And what I mean by that is, this would have been awesome to kick off the new year with. So this one's also from Coast to Coast, and this one is titled, Grand Warlock of Mexico Issues Forecast for 2021, and this is from Tim Banal. A colorful, self-proclaimed clairvoyant in Mexico, known as the country's Grand Warlock, has issued his forecast for 2021. Much like his fellow prognosticators around the world, the start of January is the proverbial busy season for Antonio Vasquez who holds an annual gathering in which he shares what he envisions for the coming year. By virtue of his striking appearance and bold predictions, the purported psychic's yearly announcement of what is to come over the next 12 months is a popular event in Mexico, where it garners considerable media attention. And so, as is tradition, Vasquez reportedly took to the stage last week to share a bevy of predictions for the new year. According to the Grand Warlock, the coronavirus starts to be mastered between May and June, not far off of what I'd predicted. So I guess I'm in good company with the Grand Warlock. But it doesn't end this year. To that end, he ominously warned of a second pandemic in the form of widespread financial difficulties facing people around the world due to slow economic recovery. For those seeking more specific predictions to test Vasquez at this time next year, he also predicted that the Summer Olympics set for Tokyo 
will once again be postponed and that this will be announced at a press conference in February. Now, if he gets that right, he's on to something. I guess you could kind of say 50-50, but everything I'm hearing, most people think it's like in the 80 percentile that the games are going through. The Japanese are desperate to have those games. So I, it will be fascinating to watch that, folks. As for here in America, well, there in America, folks, sorry. The Grand Warlock forecasts a difficult time for President Trump shortly after leaving office. Trump is not going to remain silent. He will continue strong until February, Vasquez said, but he will have many problems following that time period, possibly involving marital discord, illness, or legal issues. With regards to natural disasters, the prognosticator foresees an increase in hurricanes, floods, and small earthquakes, but no particularly catastrophic event. Before one gets too depressed over the Olympics being postponed for another year, a look back at the Grand Warlock's predictions for 2020 indicates that there may be no need to worry about such an event unfolding. That's because last January, Vasquez predicted that Donald Trump would be re-elected, a tremendous war would erupt between the U.S. and Iran, and that Mexico would have great success at the Summer Olympics, which ultimately were not held. Additionally, the Grand Warlock had nary a word to say about a global pandemic when he issued his forecast for 2020, suggesting that perhaps his soothsaying may be more show than substance. So again, folks, very interesting. I'm sure that man's made lots of money off of folks, so in one way I guess he's doing all right, although I do believe in karma, and I do believe in cause and effect. We'll just see, I guess. We'll we'll just see what happens with the Olympics announcement and everything else as we move ahead into 2021. Now here's another one, folks. Now, a friend of mine on Instagram, uh, Nate Odd, who's an awesome person, posts a lot of great stuff. He is the Pennsylvania correspondent for the Paranormal Sun. Now, Nate had posted a similar story, but this one is obviously from coast to coast. So, Nate, you gave me the idea to post this. So, thank you, brother. And this one is Lizzie Borden Murder House for Sale. And this is from January the 11th, also by Tim Banal. The site of an infamous double-axe murder that captured the country's attention in the late 1800s has gone on the market in Massachusetts. Located in the community of Fall River, the residence was where Andrew and Abby Borden were brutally slain in 1892, sparking a sensational murder trial of daughter Lizzie Borden, who was subsequently acquitted. In modern times, the house has become a bed and breakfast, as well as a tourist attraction, featuring guided tours recounting the case, as well as detailing purported paranormal activity said to frequently occur in the home. And now the centerpiece of the proverbial Lizzie Borden empire could be yours as the home is up for sale. According to a local media report, the Lizzie Borden Bed and Breakfast officially went on the market today with an asking price of $2 million, which includes not only the fully furnished home itself, but also the business, as well as trademarks and intellectual rights surrounding the notorious case. Described as an unbelievable opportunity to own and operate, one of New England's top tourist attractions, the listing would seem to be targeted towards potential owners who will keep the popular site running, rather than buyers who might wish to purchase the historic home for themselves alone. Lizzie's post-trial home, dubbed Maplecroft, also went up for sale last year, and both buildings are owned by the same pair of partners, who apparently have decided to get out of the Borden business. For those of you still in the U.S., I don't know if it's still around, but when I was a boy, uh, Borden Milk was one of the brands I remember. And now that I think about it, 
Every time I hear something about Lizzie Borden, I think of Borden milk or Borden cheese. But nonetheless, very fascinating. Earlier this year, well, sorry, last year in 2020, uh, in October, Loftus Hall in Ireland was up for sale, which is purportedly the most haunted place in Ireland, and some people say in all of the British Isles. So yeah, it's obviously tourism is doing it tough because a lot of these kind of things keep coming up for sale. Now, Nate was joking that if he won the lottery that he had a ticket for the other night, he was going to go and buy it. I haven't heard anything from him, so I'll have to check in and see if Nate has gone and bought the, the Lizzie Borden house and if he needs an estate manager to head over and get to work. Okay, my friends, now it's time for the last but definitely not least News of the Damned article. Now, this one's been making the rounds this week, folks, and it's definitely something you're going to be hearing more and more about from me and from anywhere you get this kind of content. Now, this one came out in New Zealand, so I found it in kind of my daily scroll. But as I said, I'd actually had a few sent to me by a few other people, very similar articles. One of them was from Dave Jordan at the Old 77. So, hey, thanks, Dave. Uh, again, I always appreciate you sending me these articles. So this one is from msn.com, and this one is titled, Millions of CIA Documents on UFOs Released. Here's what they show. Now, this one just came out on the 14th of January. Months ahead of a deadline for U.S. agencies to reveal everything they know about UFOs to senators, the CIA's entire archive has apparently been uploaded to the Internet for everyone to see. Millions of pages of documents have appeared on the Black Vault, now, the Black Vault, folks, for those of you who don't know, uh, it's such an amazing repository and such an awesome tool for these kind of things. The problem is because these are files that were all released, you know, paper files back to the 50s. Um, it's all in PDFs and you got to go in there and kind of find it. So what happens oftentimes when you've got a data dump like this is it takes people quite a while to kind of go through it and catch some of this stuff and see what's happening. So at the end of this article, I'll give you a little bit of a wrap up of what's going on. So anyway, I just wanted to point that out. What happens is you may hear in a week or a month some awesome, really awesome document that somebody's found. But again, it just takes time to go through it all. So the Black Vault is a website dedicated to exposing government secrets by acquiring declassified documents and making them available to the public. Founder John Greenwald Jr., says it's the culmination of 20 years of lobbying and freedom of information requests. Around 20 years ago, I had fought for years to get additional UFO reports released by the CIA, Greenwald told Motherboard. It was like pulling teeth. I went around and around with them to try and do so, finally achieving it. I received a large box of a couple thousand pages, and I had to scan them in one page at a time. The mother load came on a CD-ROM he acquired last year. Greenwald complaining the CIA has made it as difficult as possible to access the documents, which does not shock me at all, which date back to the 1950s. They offer a format that is very outdated, multipage.tif, and offer text file outputs, largely unusable, that I think they intend to have people use as a search tool, he told Motherboard. So .tif, folks, I've never even heard of that. In my opinion, this outdated format makes it very difficult for people to see the documents and use them, 
for any research purpose. Undeterred, he spent time converting the files into a PDF format, which can be easily viewed on modern computers. And in cases where the text hasn't been redacted or rendered illegible through poor quality photocopying, searchable. Now that's awesome. Although the CIA claims this is their entire collection, we've heard that before, there may be no way to entirely verify that, he wrote on the Black Vault blog. Research by the Black Vault will continue to see if there are additional documents still uncovered within the CIA's holdings. At this stage, the files are merely labeled by number, with no indication of their contents. NewsHub opened a few and found a summary of a Greek newspaper from 1953 carrying claims from a former Soviet engineer, George Klein, that the Third Reich had developed a flying saucer capable of reaching altitudes of 12 kilometers and flying at twice the speed of sound. Now that's something else, folks, because that's eight miles high. Twice the speed of sound, so over 1,500 miles an hour back in World War II. A document from 1992 analyzing Chinese media reports, including a claim the communists had made progress in the study of unidentified flying objects. A 1994 report on a completely new flying machine invented by the Russians, which it described as a cross between a plane, helicopter, and dirigible, which seems like a UFO. A 1972 list of Soviet publications on parapsychology and psychoenergetics and related subjects. Again, something I've covered. Not a full-blown episode, but I've discussed it. Numerous lists of what appear to be TV listings from Soviet Russia, Germany, Vietnam, and other communist socialist nations. A report of unidentified helicopters breaching U.S. airspace from Canada. Damn Canadians. A claim a UFO was spotted over Stalingrad in 1954 by patients in a military hospital. A memo saying an upcoming book claiming the CIA was involved with saucers with sheer drama aimed at magazine story appeal. The reproduction of a 1991 Soviet newspaper article looking into a conspiracy theory that Yuri Gagarin never made it into space, and the Soviets' claims to having the first man in space was a lie. A document regarding the fatal shooting down of a U.S. balloon in Belarus in 1995, which local forces deemed a UFO. A newspaper article suggesting the Pentagon had found aliens, but couldn't find fugitive war criminal Radovan Karadzic. A mysterious explosion in the Russian town of Sasovo, which had no clear cause, some locals blaming it on UFOs. The CIA has declined to comment on the contents of the upload. Of course they have. A COVID-19 relief package passed into law earlier this year contained a clause requiring the Pentagon, FBI, and other intelligence agencies to spill the beans on observed airborne objects that have not been identified, as well as supply detailed analysis of unidentified phenomena data within 180 days. So folks, look, I don't hide from these things. I'm on the record. I've told you what I thought was going to happen with this disclosure in June, which was basically SFA. If you don't know what SFA means, Google it. But basically, it was going to be a lot of smoke and not a lot of fire. Again, I absolutely 1000% hope I'm wrong. I would love nothing more than there to be some massive smoking gun in whatever comes out in June to say we're not alone in the universe and here's proof. I'm just not holding my breath about it because as I said, I've been hearing since at least the quarter days that disclosure is imminent. It's going to happen anytime. The president's interested, so we're going to find out what's going on. The president knows very little in comparison to what the security apparatuses of various nations know. 
they're basically read into it on a need-to-know basis, and they know very little. That's my opinion. That's the opinion of many people I've known in government, in the U.S. and other governments. And it's also the opinion of many, many other researchers out there. Again, I hope I'm wrong, folks. I really hope that somebody trots out the holy grail of a crash disk or something else in June and says, well, we have to disclose, so here you go. But as I say, I think a lot of this has already been moving, moved into civilian companies that don't have to disclose anything. So we shall see. Now, I stumbled across a gentleman through one of the podcast groups who was basically live streaming him going through and reading some of these articles. Now, unfortunately, I don't have the name of his YouTube channel right here handy. And also his YouTube uh, video was skipping and he seemed to have some connectivity issues. I thought it was just me, but even with my Ethernet cable plugged in, I was still getting lag, and then somebody else commented on the stream that they were getting lag. Anyway, I thought it was awesome that he was doing this. So one of the things I'm toying with the idea of is that over the hiatus of the show, maybe just hopping on a couple times a week or even once a week, and just reading you some of these articles just... You know, some of these documents going into the Black Vault, settling on a few at random and just reading them out for you. So we'll see. But that's one thing that could maybe keep you very interested while I'm doing various other things. So, yeah, folks, that is an emerging story that's going to continue to get bigger and bigger as the year rolls on. So you will want to make sure that you're tuning into the Paranormal Sun to keep up with it. And folks, that's a wrap on the final News of the Damn segment for Season 2 of The Paranormal Sun. Again, thank you to everyone who's taken the time to send me articles, especially Harry in North Carolina, Nate in Pennsylvania, Dave in Missouri, and everyone else who sent me articles. Thank you so much. I really do appreciate it. In Homestead, Florida, not far from Miami, and off the South Dixie Highway, sits a world-famous structure called the Coral Castle. Though not really a castle, and not really made of coral, it is nonetheless an amazing achievement. More than 1,100 tons of the sedimentary rock, oolite limestone, was quarried and sculpted into a variety of shapes, including slab walls, tables, chairs, a crescent moon, a water fountain, and a giant sundial. You are about to see an engineering marvel that has been compared with Stonehenge and the Great Pyramids of Egypt, touts an information sheet available at the castle. Many sources claim that the castle is scientifically inexplicable. According to the attraction's website, Coral Castle has baffled scientists, engineers, and scholars since its opening in 1923. It has appeared countless times in books, magazines, and television shows. Rock musician Billy Idol even wrote a hit song about the place, Sweet Sixteen. The park is listed on the National Register of Historic Places. As astounding as the castle is, the life of its creator is just as astounding and is filled with toil and pain as tales of unrequited love nearly always are. Edward Leed Skalnan was born on January the 12th, 1887, in Latvia. Little is known of his childhood, aside from the fact that his parents were not wealthy and he received only a fourth-grade formal education. Edward was a sickly boy who often spent time reading books, helping him to develop an inquisitive mind and a lifelong yearning for knowledge. Well, folks, there's a direct tie-in with J.T., because I was very much in the same vein. 
It was suggested that he learn stonemasonry from his father and practice this craft in Latvia after coming of age. When Ed was 26 years old, he became engaged to marry his one true love, Agnes Scuffs. Agnes was 10 years younger than Ed, and he affectionately referred to her as his sweet 16. Agnes canceled the wedding just one day before the ceremony. Heartbroken and deeply saddened by this tragic loss, Ed then decided to emigrate to North America. On April the 7th, 1912, Ed arrived in New York City. After looking for suitable work around the East Coast until August, he relocated to the Pacific Northwest, which was experiencing a logging boom. On June the 5th, 1917, while in Oregon, he filled in his draft registration, stating that he was self-employed and engaged in axe handle manufacturing. The 1920 census data reveals that he resided in Reedsport, Oregon. In the winter of 1922-1923, after contracting tuberculosis, Ed moved to the warmer climates of Florida, where he purchased an undeveloped parcel of land in Florida City, which at the time was lightly inhabited. On February the 27th of 1923, the Homestead Enterprise newspaper published a notice that E. Leed Scalnin, a Californian, has purchased an acre of the R.L. Moser homestead and is planning to erect a home soon. Moser reportedly found Ed sick and dying on the side of the road and nursed him back to health with the help of his wife and daughter. The details of his illness are unclear. Some called it an unnamed lung condition. Others said it was definitely tuberculosis that was fully healed by the Florida sun. In statements pieced together by Bodo Cozzolo, a publicity agent hired by later owners of the Coral Castle, from Florida City residents, many of whom saw Ed as a true friend, one confirmed that he came to Florida as he was sick in the north. He felt better living down here. Moving south for one's health, towards the sun, was not uncommon in the early 1920s. Or perhaps Florida had something Ed was looking for, beyond a possible cure. Writer Joe Bullard, in an account, says, A man told him his father once saw, nearly 400 miles north of Florida City, a little guy walking down the road with a witching rod. He asked the little guy what he was doing, and the guy just said, When I know it, I'll find it. When Ed became famous, his father saw his picture in the paper and said that was the little guy on the road with the rod. The witching rod was a dowsing rod, and Ed might have been seeking water, mapping the specifics of his future construction site. Ley lines are considered by many to be just magnetic fields, or where the underground rivers go. They're still used today to determine, for example, where you want to dig your well, where you want to grow your medicinal herbs. Dowsing rods are used to determine where the energy is, or where it isn't. It makes sense that Ed would be using ley lines to map an ideal location for Rockgate and his later Coral Castle. Ed then set out on a lifelong quest to create a monument to his lost love that has become one of the world's most remarkable accomplishments. Originally called Rockgate Park, but now known as the Coral Castle, with no outside assistance or large machinery, Ed single-handedly built the Coral Castle, carving and sculpting over 1,100 tons of coral rock as a testimony to his lost love, Agnes. What makes Ed's work remarkable is the fact that he was just over 5 feet tall and weighed only 100 pounds. In this part of Florida, the coral in some areas can be up to 4,000 feet thick, which is nearly a mile. Incredibly, he cut and moved huge coral blocks using only hand tools. He had acquired some skills during his time working in lumber camps and from his time with working with his family of stonemasons in Latvia. He drew on his knowledge and strengths to cut and move these blocks. Ed lived in Florida City until about 1936. He was a very private person, 
and when he heard about a planned subdivision being built near him, he decided to move to Homestead, and in 1936 he bought 10 acres of land. Ed spent the next three years moving the Coral Castle structures he had already begun to build from Florida City to Homestead, a distance of 10 miles. How did Ed move all of these carvings 10 miles? Ed had the chassis of an old Republic truck on which he laid two rails. He had a friend with a tractor move the loaded trailer from Florida City to Homestead. The tractor's driver was not allowed to help or even watch Ed move the blocks, but instead showed up for work every morning to find the truck already loaded with several tons of coral. Ed lived a very simple life. He did not own a car. Instead, Ed would ride his bicycle three and a half miles into town for food or supplies on a regular basis. Many people saw the coral carvings being moved along the Dixie Highway, but no one ever saw Ed loading or unloading the trailer. Ed did much of his work at night by lantern light, and to help protect his privacy, he built numerous lookouts along the castle walls. When he arrived in Homestead, what would eventually become Coral Castle took on a far more cosmic contour than its original location. Ed added fortress-like walls, an obelisk, and a telescope for locating the North Star, all of which are huge. In 1940, after the carvings were in place, Ed finished erecting the walls. The coral walls weigh 125 pounds per cubic foot. Each section of wall is 8 feet tall, 4 feet wide, and 3 feet thick, and weighs more than 5.8 tons. The largest stones in the complex are 25 feet tall and weigh over 30 tons. This makes some of the stones in the Coral Castle taller than those in Stonehenge and heavier than the heaviest stone in the Great Pyramid of Giza. The sculptural garden surrounded by a coral gate features a geometric landscape, a moon pond representing the phases of the moon, a sundial that accurately tells time within two minutes, and a towering telescope aligned to the North Star. The structure also includes a giant coral rock table shaped like a heart, an ode to his valentine Agnes. For decades, the park featured a perfectly balanced stone gate that, despite its weight, would easily swing open with a strong breeze or the push of a finger. How it worked remained a mystery until 1986, when it stopped moving. When the gate was removed, it was revealed that it rotated on a metal shaft and rested on a truck bearing. Though Ed was a private person, he opened the park in 1923 as a tourist attraction and would often greet visitors to personally show them his handiwork. Ed was not only a hard worker, but also a self-styled philosopher, and a bit of a crank if we're being honest. He issued a series of pamphlets about his personal views on political, social, and domestic issues. His first and longest booklet, A Treatise on Moral Education, is printed on only the left-hand pages and begins with the following preface. Reader, if for any reason you do not like the things I say in the little book, I left just as much space as I used, so you can write your own opinion opposite it and see if you can do better. The author. Another moralizing booklet, optimistically titled A Book in Every Home, complained, The schools and the churches are cheapening the girls. They are arranging picnics, are coupling up the girls with the fresh boys, and then they send them out in the woods, parks, beaches, and other places so that they can practice in first-degree lovemaking. Edward also opined that the unemployed and powerless should not have any voting rights. It is not sound to allow the weaklings to vote. Anyone who is too weak to make his own living is not strong enough to vote, because their weak influence weakens the state. He was clearly a man of strong will and convictions who prized self-sufficiency and a rigid work ethic. And I'll tell you what, folks. Talk about your throwback opinions. 
that goes back to the Roman Republic that they felt that if you didn't serve in the army or you didn't own land, you shouldn't have a right to vote. So yeah, um, he was a throwback even for his time. Over the next 20 years, Ed constructed a massive structure that he called Rock Gate and dedicated, in his own words, to the girl who had left him years before. Working alone and mostly at night, Ed eventually quarried and sculpted more than 1,100 short tons, or nearly 1 million kilograms, or 2.12 million pounds, of oolite limestone into architectural and engineering landmarks that would later be known as the Coral Castle. He used various basic tools available under his modest means, including salvaged timber and old automobile parts. First he built a house out of limestone blocks and wood. Then he gradually constructed the stone structure for which he is now famous. With a reserved personality, he eventually opened the Coral Castle to the public, offering tours for 10 cents. Now, a lot has been made over the years, folks, about Ed charging for people to enter his park. Well, number one, it's not like he's claiming he had a crashed UFO or a frozen Bigfoot, and he's charging people to see it. So basically what they're getting at is, oh, well, he charged people, so it must be a hoax. Something that's often left out by these same people who attack him and say he was in it for the money, they fail to point out the fact that if people turned up and couldn't afford the admission, he'd let them in anyway. And he often allowed school trips and other people trying to learn in for free. Now, if ever there was a time you would want to make the money, it would be on those school trips. Let's say you've got 20 students at 10 cents each. I'm sure that's much more than he could get during a normal day. For people to attack him and basically saying that he was just out to make money from all this, to me personally, just doesn't jive. He's not the type of man who ended up living the life of an eccentric flimflam artist that got rich off of this work. When Ed's place was complete, he offered tours, as I've said. He revealed to visitors what had become a kind of simulcrum of a home built in Agnes's honor. Should his love return to him, there was a throne, a heart-shaped table, a bathtub, and what Ed called his mad rocker, a side-by-side -side rocking chair so that the lovers could face away from each other but still be close during an argument. Admission was ten cents, and he'd wax poetic about the unseen girl, her youth, his subsequent humiliation, and his move to America. Celestial objects and others appeared in threes, three moons, three planets, three chairs, as if to imply his love was beyond this earthly plane, or to send the rest of us, generations later, desperately searching for the meaning. Pride of place in the castle complex is given to a wonderful 30-ton lensless telescope that soars 25 feet above the castle walls. The telescope is perfectly aligned to the North Star, and on the first day of winter, sunlight pours directly through the scope's aperture. Ed also crafted a sundial that tells the time within two minutes of accuracy, as I said before. This solar clock stands directly across from a water pool carved from a huge slab of coral, with coral crescent moons on each side of the basin. The crescents represent the waxing and waning lunar cycles. The circular pool represents the full moon. Now there is a bit of controversy about Ed's death and some of the time frames, as with many things in his life. There were d two different birth dates given, etc., etc. So I'm going to give you both versions of how he passed away, and what caused it. In December of 1951, Ed became ill. He put a sign on the door of his castle saying, going to the hospital. He then took a bus to Jackson Memorial in Miami and died three days later in his sleep at the age of 64. Ed was an eccentric and lived on an exclusive diet of only crackers and sardines. 
In his later years, he starved himself to save money. On November the 9th, 1951, as I say, he checked himself into the Jackson Memorial Hospital. Apparently, he suffered a stroke either before he left for the hospital or at the hospital. He died 28 days later of kidney infection at the age of 64. His death certificate noted that his death was a result of uremia, failure of kidneys, as a result of infection and abscess. After his death, a nephew living in Michigan inherited the castle. Harry Lee Scalnan, grandson of Ed's brother Otto, was living in the U.S. with his wife Mary and had no money to run Rock Gate. In 1953, he signed the property over to Julius Levin, a Chicago jeweler who'd retired in Miami. Levin knew nothing about the attraction, only that the property was available and good for the reasons property was good in those days. But he fell in love with Rock Gate, restoring, reopening, and renaming it Coral Castle, banking on Florida's budding tourist industry and the love story behind the place. They continued Ed's love of the creation and preserved Coral Castle as a museum for all to see and experience. Coral Castle was added to the U.S. National Register of Historic Places in 1984. Love turned to stone, as it turns out, was the catchphrase of his marketing campaign. During the switch in ownership, a box of Ed's personal effects was found, containing a set of instructions that led to the discovery of 35 $100 bills, his life savings. Ed made a small living giving tours for 10 and 25 cents from the sale of his pamphlets and from the sale of the land where U.S. Highway 1 passes the castle. Edward's life achievement, the Coral Castle, is an undying testimony of his great love for Agnes Scuffs, and it took him from 1923 to 1951 to complete it. Many say the only other tribute that can compare to the Coral Castle is the Taj Mahal, which was built over 20 years and by several thousand slaves, as a monument to the late king's wife. In Ed's case, he labored intensively for 28 years, working on this astonishing masterpiece. Ed was a common man who touched the lives of all who met him in an uncommon way. Forever carved in stone, the Coral Castle is a timeless beauty that defines Ed's undying love of his sweet 16, and will continue to astonish Coral Castle visitors for many more years to come. So I bet a lot of people out there would think that Coral Castle is a unique monument, and it is in a way. But if you think it's the only structure built by a single man, by himself, who lived a bit of a life of a hermit, you would be very, very mistaken. So I've got a couple other astonishing cases here that I had never heard of before I did the research for this program. Now the first one was called Le Palais Ideal. The Ideal Palace, and that was built in Autrive, France, and it's still there to this very day. Ferdinand Cheval began the building in April 1879 when he was 43 years old. Ironically, that's JT's age right now. He reported, I was walking very fast when my foot caught on something that sent me stumbling a few meters away. I wanted to know the cause. In a dream I had built a palace, a castle or caves. I cannot express it well. I told no one about it for fear of being ridiculed, and I felt ridiculous myself. Then, fifteen years later, when I had almost forgotten my dream, when I wasn't thinking of it at all, my foot reminded me of it. My foot tripped on a stone that almost made me fall. I wanted to know what it was. It was a stone of such a strange shape that I put it in my pocket to admire it at my ease. The next day I went back to the same place. I found more stones, even more beautiful. 
I gathered them together on the spot and was overcome with delight. It's a sandstone shaped by water and hardened by the power of time. It becomes as hard as pebbles. It represents a sculpture so strange that it is impossible for man to imitate. It represents any kind of animal, any kind of caricature. I said to myself, since nature is willing to do the sculpture, I will do the masonry and the architecture. For the next 33 years, Cheval picked up stones during his daily mail round and carried them home to build the Palais Ideal. He spent the first 20 years building the outer walls. At first he carried the stones in his pockets, then switched to a basket. Eventually he used a wheelbarrow. He often worked at night, by the light of an oil lamp. Sound familiar? The palace materials mainly consist of stones, river-washed, pebbles, porous tufa, and fossils of many different shapes and sizes. When a visitor first comes up to the palace, the first face they see is the southern facade, spanning nearly 30 yards long and 14 yards high. The decoration resembles aspects of both the Brighton Pavilion and Gaudi's Sagra Familia. Cheval did not travel, and he had even given himself the title of peasant, so even though the qualities resemble those pieces of art, he had never seen them prior. Three giant stones, each with doll-like faces, standing close to 35 feet high, serve not only as decoration, but as a support system for the Barbary Tower, with an elegant spiral staircase lined with swans made of cement leading up to it. The tall stones were named Vercingetorix, Archimedes, and Caesar. Cheval hand-carved the names into each individual figure. The palace is a mix of different styles with inspirations from Christianity to Hinduism. Cheval bound the stones together with lime, mortar, and cement. Perhaps the most iconic phrase he inscribed on the walls reads, 1879 to 1912, 10,000 days, 93,000 hours, 33 years of struggle. Let those who think they can do better try. Cheval wished to be buried in his palace, but because that is illegal in France, he spent eight more years building a mausoleum for himself in the Autrives Cemetery. He died on 19th of August, 1924, about a year after he had finished building it, and is buried there in the mausoleum. So there you go, folks. That's a very fascinating tale. I'd never even heard of it. And definitely, if I ever get to go to France, I'll definitely be looking up the Palais Ideals. That is an amazing structure. And to think this man spent over 40 years of his life between constructing that and constructing his own mausoleum, that is pretty astounding. And well, for a good bit of his life, holding down a full-time job. Now, the other one here is the Bishop Castle, and that's in central Colorado in the U.S. It is an elaborate and intricate one-man project named after its constructor, Jim Bishop, that has become a roadside attraction in central Colorado. Bishop bought the land for the site for $450 when he was 15 years old and construction on what was originally intended to be a family project to build a cottage started in 1969. After Bishop surrounded the cottage with rocks, several neighbors noted that the structure looked something like a castle. Bishop took this into consideration and soon began building his castle. According to Roadside America, for most of the 40 years he was working on the castle, Bishop was engaged in a running battle with Washington bureaucrats over the rocks that he used, which came from the national forest surrounding his property. Bishop felt that they were his for the taking. The government wanted to charge him by the truckload. My understanding is that that case has been settled. 
So there's two other fascinating structures, folks, and they are different than Coral Castle, but I just wanted to give you a bit of a background of what people can do when they put their mind to it. Now we're going to get into the theories of how the castle was built, and there are many competing theories. When questioned about how he moved the blocks of coral, Ed would only reply that he understood the laws of weight and leverage well, and that I know the secrets of the people who built the pyramids. This man, with only a fourth grade education, even built an AC current generator, the remains of which are on display today. Because there are no records from witnesses, his methods continue to baffle engineers and scientists, and Ed's secrets of construction have often been compared to Stonehenge and the Great Pyramids. The only written records Ed left are five pamphlets that he wrote, a book in every home, which contains Ed's thoughts on three subjects, his Sweet Sixteen, domestic, and political views. He wrote three pamphlets on magnetic current and his mineral, vegetable, and animal life. They contain his beliefs on life cycle. These pamphlets are available only in the castle's gift shop. Now, many stories and wild theories have emerged over the decades about Ed and how he built his castle. Some say he levitated the blocks with psychic powers or by singing to the stones. Others suggest that he had arcane knowledge of magnetism and so-called earth energies. In the 28 years that Ed worked to build the Coral Castle, he never allowed anyone to see him work. In fact, he did most of his work after dark. One time, a few local teens spied on Ed one night. They reported that Ed was able to make giant stones float into the air and move into place by levitation. When Ed was asked what kinds of tools he used, he only ever referred to something he called a perpetual motion holder. Now, folks, if you Google Coral Castle Black Box, you'll see this thing that people have talked about. And there have been rumors for many years that this was some kind of powerful device, whether it's advanced technology or something magical, that he used to move these stones. But again, that's only one of the many theories. In his book, Coral Castle, Everything You Know Is Wrong, Praveen Mohan, who writes with, I'm not saying it was aliens, but it was aliens fervor. It looks something that, you know, came from outer space. Attempts to prove Ed not only utilized electromagnetic forces to build Coral Castle, but also filled it with references to extraterrestrials, outer space, building techniques specific to the Great Pyramid, all of it. Mohan's narratives blur together. Here and in popular culture, aliens, astronomy, pyramids, Freemasons, the secrets of the universe's origins, it's difficult to know why Ed would want to visually reference extraterrestrial magic simply because he was potentially using it. The idea one supposes is that it's all coded, cosmically charged language, waiting to be translated. To conspiracy theorists, the tropes seem inherently linked, almost as an aesthetic choice. Mohan breaks down several items at Coral Castle. Ed's mirror, a small vessel with water, is lined, he explains, with graphite, commonly used in batteries. By placing aluminum foil on top and filling this receptacle with salt water, Ed turned this into a battery. Mohan notes that there are aluminum flakes on the graphite. The bathtub, says Mohan, was a tank for chemical experiments. In his books, Ed described the process of testing objects for their magnetic power in water. At the top of Ed's 25-foot, 23-ton telescope, there's a wire crosshair in a hole. Depending on the season, the North Star is visible in one of its four quadrants. Coral Castle, says Mohan, references the stars everywhere. 
the obelisk matches the constellation of Taurus. A triangular gable-roofed shape on the north wall is Libra. The west wall, T-shaped and stocky, is Virgo. Then there is Repentance Corner, replete with holes for a child or Ed's wife to place their heads. Tour guides say Ed would lock their heads into the holes if they misbehaved. It's a disturbing, abusive, low-key torture device, and the guides seem to get a kick out of it. Shows you what kind of husband he was, one chuckled. But heck no, says Mohan. That's no medieval stockade. It's Castor and Pollux, the twins of Gemini. One of the site's tour guides, Ray Ramirez, who is a skilled dowser, that is, someone who uses wooden and metal rods and pendulums to locate sources of water, oil, and lost objects, has his own ideas about how Leeds Scanlan managed to move the huge blocks. Dowsers also can detect unusual energy flows, explained Ramirez. Using metal dowsing rods made of bent coat hangers and PVC tubing, Ramirez said he has located some very odd energy vortices within the boundaries of the castle. I believe Ed discovered a way to move massive blocks of coral by taking advantage of the magnetic powers of the Earth, said Ramirez. The Earth is surrounded by an invisible web of energy that is concentrated at certain spots. At these spots, energy flows freely, and people are much stronger than they would be elsewhere. Ed is a marvel and a mystery to me, said Ramirez, but piece by piece, I am putting together his puzzle. Someday I will know all of his secrets. Though Lead Scanlan worked alone, he was not a reclusive hermit. He had friends who he saw often. One man, Orville Irwin, was not only a longtime friend of Lead Scanlan's, but also a building contractor with a deep knowledge of construction techniques. Irwin wrote a 1996 book with the inspiring title, Mr. Kant is Dead, the story of the Coral Castle, and in it he explains, through photographs, drawings, and schematics, how it was done. Irwin pours cold water on the paranormal theories that unknown energies, alien technology, or levitation built the castle. In fact, he finds such theories an insult to the hard work and integrity of his friend. Back in the days when Ed started carving out his original stones, Irwin writes, his was a generation who knew accomplishments by the sweat of the brow. It wasn't mysticism, but hard work. This is how Ed really accomplished the massive project. As tempting as it is to view the amazing park through a veil of mystery, in fact we probably already know how the castle was built. Creating a structure like the Coral Castle today could probably be accomplished in a few months with a construction crew and modern machinery. But Ed worked alone using basic tools like picks, winches, ropes, and pulleys. Ed himself said that he did it using hard work and the principles of leverage. The tools he used to quarry the rock are on display at the Coral Castle, and several old photos depict the large tripods, pulleys, and winches he used to move the blocks. Though the quarried stone slabs are large, they are actually lighter than they appear because the rock is porous. Some local residents later remembered that as school children, they had field trips to the construction site of the future Coral Castle, and Ed personally explained manual methods of his work. One man, Earl S. Lee, says he saw Ed use a small telephone pole to pry rocks out of a ditch. McClure adds that Ed used tools from old car parts taken from a nearby junkyard to piece together his structure, a fact mentioned on tours at Coral Castle and that he had a block and tackle, and smaller pulleys and hoists. The pine tripod could definitely lift 10-ton rocks, but no larger. Many doubt that Ed's 10-ton hoist was capable of lifting the tallest and heaviest pieces of coral he quarried. 
and then moving and placing those pieces so precisely. Well, if you had stones that were up to 25, 30 tons, I can see what the problem was because that pulley would be operating at three times its max weight. In an episode of In Search Of, hosted by Leonard Nimoy, a construction crew tries to slice a coral rock slab with a diamond tip power saw and lift it with a 600 horsepower crane. The process is unwieldy, even for them. Ed had no such crane. Some writers have suggested that Edward's booklet contains further information on his electromagnetic research and philosophies encoded in its pages, and the blank pages are provided for the reader to fill in the decrypted solutions. It has also been suggested that Ed's frequent referral to his Sweet 16 may in fact refer to the numerological and or scientific relevance of the number 16 to his research and theories. Ed became interested in the general theory of magnetism. His four pamphlets addressed interaction of electricity, magnetism, and the body. Ed also included a number of simple experiments to validate his theories. Contradicting the standard model of electromagnetism, but remarkably in line with the concept of magnetic moment slash electron spin theory, his thesis is based upon the theory that the metal itself is not the magnet and that the real magnets are circulating in the metal. These individual north and south pole magnets are particles smaller than atoms or photons, and each particle in the substance was an individual magnet all by itself. Ed claimed that all matter was being acted upon by what he called individual magnets. He also claimed that scientists of his time were looking in the wrong place for their understanding of electricity, and that they were observing only one half of the whole concept, with one-sided tools of measurement. Magnets in general are indestructible. For instance, you can burn wood and flesh, you can destroy the body, but you cannot destroy the magnets that hold together the body. They go somewhere else. Iron has more magnets than wood, and every different substance has a different number of magnets that hold the substance together. If I make a battery with copper for positive terminal and beef for negative terminal, I get more magnets out of it than when I used copper for positive terminal and sweet potato for negative terminal. From this you can see that no two things are alike. It is said that Ed was never seen working on his coral castle, though neighbors reported a light in his workshop tower accompanying strange singing late into the night. What sort of technology did Ed use, and why would he want to keep such a miraculous discovery a secret? Did he in fact possess the same building secrets employed in the ancient world? We are merely left to speculate, as Ed offers only the clues of the structure itself, taking the methods for building it to his grave. One other thing to note, folks, and one of the simplest explanations, if you believe it, is that some people would say, just because no one ever saw Ed working with other people doesn't mean he didn't have help. It doesn't mean that he didn't have other people who were turning up, helping him after dark, etc. Now, I personally don't believe that, but if you are inclined to believe it, I can fully understand how Occam's razor would be at play there. So what are we left with? Who was Ed? A crank? A fraud? Perhaps a genius? Like so many others, the answer is not a simple cut-and-dried exercise that can be sorted out by reading a book or watching a movie. Though he came from a family of stonemasons, his methods have stumped engineers who have compared his techniques to that of the amazing Stonehenge. Some of the stones are even calibrated according to celestial alignments, and the stone walls fit seamlessly together without the use of materials like cement. 
Ed once claimed that he discovered not only how the ancient builders in Peru and Egypt were able to set in place blocks of stones with only primitive tools, but also the secrets of anti-gravity. There are scads of biographies and conspiracy theories on the subject, be strewn across the internet from corner to psyched-out corner, all with their own ideas. Ed sang to the rocks till they levitated, or that he received extraterrestrial support. Another thing to bear in mind is that in the time when Ed was born and grew up and moved to America, which was only scarcely 120 years ago, record-keeping was still far from perfect. And one of the things that has been pointed out repeatedly about Ed is that the entire story of his Sweet Sixteen may in fact be a cover for something else. In those late 19th century days, there was a general unrest among the lower classes throughout Europe, and the development of socialism sparked a growing nationalist movement in Latvia, where most citizens objected to the oppressive rule of imperial Russia. One of Ed's brothers, Otto, became a member of the Latvian Social Democratic Workers' Party. During a 1905 uprising, another brother, Ernest, was arrested. Could Ed's real motive for going to America have been fleeing involvement in a revolution and not an unrequited love? The unofficial story, as also told by Ed, though not at all as widely as his tale of the Sweet Sixteen, is that the castle was built as a temple to the Egyptian gods, constructed using the same techniques the ancient Egyptians used to build pyramids. Visitors to the castle are left to decide for themselves what motivated Ed, but it's easy to see that the items he created as a tribute to his lost love, the beds, the heart-shaped table, and the rocking chairs, are far less carefully and lovingly crafted than the castle's shrines, occult and planetary symbols, and astronomical observatory. Now, the perfect tale within a tale of the castle is this, showing that what one man accomplished without modern machinery could not be replicated, even with such equipment, many years after his death. One of the more miraculous features of Coral Castle is the nine-ton stone block used as a gate at the entrance of the castle. Ed set this large stone with such precision that it could be easily opened with the gentlest push. In 1986, over 30 years after Ed's passing, the gate had to be repaired and the job required a six-man crew with a 20-ton crane to move the large stone slab. Yet despite the extra muscle, the group of men was still not able to set the gate with the same precision as Ed had set it originally. Ed likely wanted it to be mysterious. The rest of us do too. It gives us something to prod at, something that aligns with the weird Florida narrative. And with that, my friends, that wraps up the story of the Coral Castle. I hope that you found it interesting. Again, it's one of those stories that so many people have at least heard of, but they might not know the details. And this story was requested by my friends and loyal listeners in North Carolina, Harry and Lisa. So there is your homage by me covering the Coral Castle as the season finale of season two of The Paranormal Sun. So, folks, you will be hearing from me at the very latest, the 10th of February. I've got a strange feeling you'll be hearing from me in some shape or form before then. So keep your ears out. Keep an eye on the pages. If there are things that you'd like me to cover, make sure you contact me. And I hope that you have a great few weeks. Like I say, you've got old shows to go back and cover. And I'll try and have some other stuff for you to enjoy as well. Now... It wouldn't be an episode of The Paranormal Sun 
without me giving you the famous quote from Art Bell, which is, a mind should not be so open that the brain falls out. However, it should not be so closed that whatever gray matter does reside within may not be reached. Take care, my friends, and I will talk to you in season three.